0: Good to see you guys. Welcome back to winter. Glad that we could be here together. Can enjoy this. <laughs> um, it's not so bad. It's not so bad. It's it's really good. I uh, so happy Savannah's here. But I got to tell you, I feel so old. <laughs> Particularly when she's like, "Let's just do a VBS in like two months," and I thought, "Oh." She's like, "We can do it." So she's got that energy. I'm so thankful. I shouldn't feel this old, but I do. Um, yeah, but I'm, I'm so glad we're going to be trying to do that. And, you know, of course, like, it's going to be a, a group effort if we do it. But we're only doing three days and just in the mornings. I think we can do it. And I think it would be a really great outreach to just um, to reach some people and serve some kids. And uh, so I just want to encourage you to, to think about uh, helping out with that. It's going to be a lot of fun. So, uh, man, we have been making our way through the book of Acts and, like, we've actually been doing this on and off. I went back and I looked for almost exactly two years. This is, I think, like, the seventh sprint <laughs> that we're having through a couple books. And today we are wrapping up that seventh sprint. So there's going to be an eighth at some point, but I don't know when that will be. Um, right? So, so we're, we're in Acts chapter 20. And we're going to be starting in verse first, uh, 16, and we're just going to make our way through there. So if you want to open up your Bible as you can to Acts chapter 20, verse 16. And um, yeah, so, we're, so we've been going along through the book of Acts, and we've been really in this section... Um, where uh, we, we we just seen what paul's ministry like has been life has been in in uh, ephesus right and ephesus like i've said Like i think the last three weeks in a row is kind of the high watermark of the mission of god as it is laid out In the book of acts paul's ministry is just coming to its peak and now as he's stepping out of es- ephesus as we're going to read this morning paul is filled with this sense that things are kind of Drawing to a close with his missionary journeys, um, in this moment, what what he's doing is like there's, he was like gonna be leaving Ephesus. He felt like God was, was told him to believe, but there was then this riot right before as he was trying to leave, and so it, it kind of detained him. And what he begins to do in light of this riot is he decides, what I need to do is make one quick pass through churches kind of around the Aegean Sea in Greece and Macedonia and and then in modern day Turkey. And I need to go through it and I need to encourage them because it's understandable that given all this turmoil and the fact that there was this giant riot in one of the major cities uh, in Rome because of the the Christians, because of the way, because of these people who are following Jesus, he, he, wants, he understands that he probably needs to go and just kind of encourage the churches. And he goes around encouraging them. And then as he has done that, he's, he's made stops off in all the churches. He starts to make his way towards Jerusalem. And, but, but before he heads to Jerusalem, he needs to do one more thing. And that's that he needs to gather the Ephesian elders one final time to encourage them. Give them, him, them some parting words And that's what we're going to be reading about Today so just picking up in verse 16 And 17 it says this Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time In the province of Asia because He was hurrying to be in Jerusalem If possible for the day of Pentecost Which is next week in the church Calendar isn't that funny how that works out Totally unplanned um, Now from Mil- Miletus Miletus uh, he sent to ephesus and he summoned the elders of the church Okay, so so paul leaves ephesus he goes and he travels around the aegean He goes to different churches encouraging them and he's on his way now to jerusalem to get out of uh, asia asia minor modern-day turkey And what he does is he sails past ephesus, which is in the kind of southwestern corner of turkey To a city miletus, which is just a little bit further south down the coast from Ephesus and he lands There and he says I don't I'm not Going to go to Ephesus because it'll take too long Frankly because you know it's like The old customs it's probably like Turkey and Greece is today you show someone uh, Up at someone's house and they're like you have to stay And eat right and he's like I don't have time for all These meals and all these all these pleasantries And stuff like that I really need to get to Jerusalem and so he tells the Ephesian Church uh church uh elders To come to him in this other town And he has some Serious things to tell him to tell them. And actually, we're going to skip ahead a little bit to verse 25, right? Because I think it, it frankly, just because it makes it easier for me to explain it. So it's just about me here. Um, so skipping ahead to verse 25, he gives his reason for that he needs to talk to them. He says this, Now I know that none of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all of you, Because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own numbers and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on alert. Remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each of you with tears. And now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. See, Paul has to meet with them. And it is a serious meeting because he knows he's never coming back. Paul, somehow, the Holy Spirit has revealed to Paul that this is his final trip in Ephesus. And what we see in the book of Acts is he goes here from Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem he is arrested, and then he makes an appeal to Rome, and he's sent to Rome, and he ends up dying in Rome. So it just actually does play out the way he thought it was going to play out. But he has a concern, because he knows he's not going to see the Ephesian church, but he has a concern for them that they would not forget The things that he's taught uh, them over the course of these past three years, two years intentionally meeting in in Ephesus, and then the the little time before and after, he's been teaching them about the kingdom of God. He's been teaching them the whole counsel of God, all of God's plans. He says, "I'm not I'm innocent of your blood because I told you everything you needed to know. I've been with tears day and night preaching to you the gospel." But he is concerned, he's worried, because he knows that what he calls savage wolves, people who will come and distort the truth, will follow as he leaves. As he leaves, goes away, people are going to come, even people from within the church, to derail what God is doing there. And so he calls the elders to be on their guard. Because that's biblically what elders are called to do. They're honestly not called to do much except for teach the word of God, to pray, and then to watch and oversee, to ensure that the church continues to be focused on the truth, to be concerned with teaching and holding to the truth. And in that spirit, he says them, he gives them this really, I I think, essential word to them. He says, I will commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. The thing you need, Ephesians, as I go away to sustain this great work of God, is that you be committed to God and to the word of his grace. church needs is god's continued care and intervention and they need to hold fast to grace revealed in jesus christ they cannot depart from these things these are the contested issues of the truth the church needs grace the grace that jesus came to proclaim the grace of the gospel and that grace is able to build them up and lead them to their full inheritance, like the sanctification that they're called to, if they hold fast to grace, if they do not move past it, then they will be safe. They need to fight for grace. And as he's about to depart, Paul knows, man, it's not a given that believers would hold fast to grace because there will be contention. Grace will be contested. Jesus, the gospel, will be contested. G.K. Chesterton said, There's never anything so perilous or so exciting as orthodoxy, as the truth. Nothing so perilous or so exciting as orthodoxy. To aim, to hold on to truth, which is what Paul's word is to them. To hold on to grace. It is perilous and exciting. There are risks, but Paul knows that the reward is everything. They must continue to hold fast to the word of grace revealed in Jesus Christ. If they want to stay firm in what he's told them. What he's taught them. But there's peril involved in that. There's peril there's 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 ways to go awry when it comes about to thinking about jesus and about the gospel and about grace If we look at scripture, I think it becomes clear enough that there are two equally dangerous errors that we can uh, Fall into when it comes to thinking about the gospel thinking about grace thinking about the ministry of jesus christ Holding right belief about grace. It's it's kind of like walking a knife's edge um, on the east coast there's like In the northern end of the Appalachian Trail There's uh, Mount Katahdin it's up in Maine um, Right and I think I have a picture of it um, But the um, Most perilous part of Mount Katahdin Is what's called the knife's edge right It's this, this kind of over, over The peak there the trail goes right On that peak and I tried to find Some pictures but they don't really do it justice but You like literally have to walk this little Narrow trail I haven't done it because I'm not that cool um, But I, I have friends You know I know people um, and so like there's this nice, nice edge trail And it's maybe like maybe a foot wide where you can walk And to the left there's a big drop And to the right there's a big drop It's perilous But it's exciting <laughs> um, so, so I hear from people more masculine than me um, And such it is with orthodoxy Such it is with, with trying to walk in grace, there are risks on either side. The first risk, I think, is one that we could all be very familiar with, and that's just licentiousness, right? Like, like we think about grace, and grace is the love of God come onto Earth. Jesus Christ forgiving sins, taking them away, like they didn't even count, like removing them so far as the east is from the west, and we think that's awesome, right? But the risk is, of course, that people would take that and they would say, "Oh, well, it doesn't matter." Then I can do whatever I want, and I can act however I want, and I can sin all I want, and it's no big deal. It's like, hey, who cares? That would be a risk, a peril of walking this path of grace. Paul talks about it all the time. Romans 6, 2 through 4, he says this. He he corrects it. He he constantly is correcting that. He says, how can we who die to sin still live in it? If you are unaware of of all... uh, or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore were buri- buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we may walk in newness of life. Paul had to correct for the peril of licentiousness when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he made it clear that the gift of grace doesn't actually get me off the hook doesn't make me disinterested in God's holiness doesn't make me disinterested in in caring about how I'm living my life it actually should make me more interested it will make me terribly excited if i'm if i'm if i'm understanding it correct me it will make me terribly excited to live a new life the kind of life that Jesus invites me into Jesus died and he rose again so that we might have a new life a life with God a life of connection a life being filled with his spirit, being led into true righteousness, being used for his glory and for his purpose to receive a new life from God. It will have the effect over time of making me more interested in following God, in doing what he did, in becoming Christ-like. It will make me more interested In living this new and renewed life Than than interested in pursuing my old sinful desires Those things will become Just frankly boring to me The more I understand grace The more I understand the invitation And enabling and equipping of the spirit in my life The gospel rightly understood Will make me intrigued At the prospect of what my life could be what, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, my life can be if I were only to keep following you. Let this work of repentance go deep in my heart. The gospel rightly understood, grace rightly un- understood, will not be an excuse to just go on my own way and just like, I'm just going to do whatever I want because I've got my punch card, I can get into heaven free You know, that is not a right understanding of grace. That is a perilous understanding of grace. Grace will make me love God more. It will make me interested if I actually understand it. We receive grace. We receive love. We receive forgiveness. And rightly understood, that will draw us into a life with God. And the second error... Right there's licentiousness on one side We can fall into that the second error That we can fall into is called Legalism and we all know legalism. oh yeah Legal oh yeah I've heard about that one before it's a bad One the Pharisees Legalists they're, uh, they're They got some problems <laughs> Right and, and Paul like Paul is really concerned With legalism actually in, in, Especially in the book of Acts and actually in most of his letters The thing that he's way more concerned About is legalism now, I, I, I just think that's, that's what he dealt with more often, honestly, because he had these people coming in, and they were teaching false things. Paul was greatly concerned about legalism because he had been fighting against false teachers for years now. Everywhere he went, he went to Jerusalem, he preached the gospel, he talked about the free gift of, of grace in Jesus Christ, and people would come in and say, well, it's not that free. There are actually some rules around it. There's some laws that we need to follow in order to, to actually make good on these things. And Paul had some big problems with that. Like, he was super extra about that. Like, when people would come in and, and preach legalism, like, he would just, like, he was a jerk. But he, like, felt so strongly about it. Paul, throughout his ministry, he's having to argue, not really with licentious people, he corrects them too. I mean, particularly if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, like you, 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 can, you can tell that it's not okay that we would just go ahead and just act like we're not called to a life of holiness. But, but throughout, especially the book of Acts, Paul is dealing with religious people who are putting bounds around the free gift of grace given in Jesus Christ. He's dealing with people who insist that God's grace, his love, his forgiveness, uh, that we shouldn't extend those things too far. He's dealing with that, that kind of legalism. This kind of idea that certain people, you know, particularly early on, it was the Gentiles. They're just outside of the bounds of God's love. Like God's, God can't love them because they're just so, so far and separate from him. And they would say that, man, if these people maybe God, maybe God could love the Gentiles If they do a few things first If they get circumcised, right? Maybe God could love the Gentiles If they just turn away from their stupid Gentile ways And become more like us, right? Maybe, maybe, right? They're putting rules around, around, um, around God's love And legalism Okay, here's, here's an analogy I think That will make a lot of sense Made a lot of sense to me Legalism is like this It's like me saying to you Hey, I've got such a great thing for you. In my pocket right here, I have, for your whole family, five-day pass to Disney World. Now, for you West Coast people, Disney World is just hot and with alligators, like Disneyland, but hot and alligators, just so you know. Why? Can't tell you, but it is. Okay, so I'd say, in my pocket, I have a five-day pass to Disney World, and how would you feel about that? Disney haters don't need that You ruined my analogy. I'm, I'm going to assume you're not a Disney hater, and that you would be like, "That is amazing," or "Or Universal if you want. That's fine." Okay, whatever, whatever floats your boat. Um, it sounds awesome, but here's the thing: is like, I'm going to pull out the tickets. Like, but wait a minute, before I give these to you, I have to let you know. It's five days. It's actually five Wednesdays. Y- you can go to Disney World on five Wednesdays. So, like. You could fly to Florida on Tuesday night. And actually, you know, you wouldn't have to do it Tuesday night because it's actually, it's five Wednesdays, but after 11 o'clock and it's not on any holidays. There are a lot of blackout dates to these tickets, all right? So actually, this is really, you understand how this becomes less less exciting, less cool, less of a gift? Actually, like, if I gave those to you, you would be like, I don't, I don't really need these. These are actually really kind of a pain. And that's what legalism is. It puts limits and conditions on God's grace, on his love, on his promises, that he did not put on his promises and on his grace and on his love. And the effect is that it turns grace into something less than it really is. And we need to be cautious not to take... The thing that Paul said, the word of grace, to, to diminish that. We need to be cautious not to do that. That would be a huge mistake. The one that he's warning the Ephesians that you, you can't mess with the word of grace. You can't mess with the truth. Like, if you're going to hold fast to the truth, you have to hold fast to grace as I've taught it to you. Um, Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, he died on Friday. A huge influence in my life. And so I'm just, I'm just inserting him today, you know, as a way to, well, it ties in with the message, it's not random. He said this, (laughs) Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. The kind of outsiders Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches, Even our most avant-garde ones. We tend to draw conservative, button-down, moralistic people. The licentious and the liberated or the broken and the marginal avoid church. That can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministries and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. Jesus attracted people— and offended the religious people of his day Who wanted to put limits around God's grace Because he said, no, 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 no your, your cultural stuff that you're imposing on this I have a radical message Which is for the worst of people That they can have The full five days Unrestricted, unlimited Good news, and it's going to be great news And people hear about it And they're just like, that is the best thing ever Even though there's alligators no, they don't. That's, I'm sorry. I took it too far. Um, and like, so, so it's, like, it's like a full and unadulterated gospel that Jesus taught. And Paul said you have to hold fast to this truth. It might make some people uncomfortable. But the gospel will make us uncomfortable if it's true. Because it is good news to the poor, the broken sinners. And it's not good news that they can just keep doing their stuff that's not what it is it's good news that they are embraced and loved and that that love will transform them and if we say less than that if we say actually you need to fix yourself before you can have that grace and love that will transform you then we are adultering the gospel we're making it something that it does not say jesus's message was so impactful in his day paul's message was so impactful in ephesus because he went there out there and said I just have to look at what the Holy Spirit is doing. I have to look at what he's doing by sending Jesus Christ as an offering for sin for all people. And how can I put bounds around that that he hasn't put? Because then what I'll be doing is I'll actually be taking its power and neutering it. It's only powerful if it's given according to the truth. Grace limited is not grace. Forgiveness limited in ways that Jesus did not limit it, right? And we can talk about those limitations, not today, because it's going to be long enough already. (laughs) Well, we'll get there. says to them, keep preaching the message that I preached, the one that met the Ephesians, the Spirit of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, available to people. It makes religious people uncomfortable at times, but it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe in it. There's no power in it if we don't preach the truth of it. The message that Paul taught, the message that Jesus taught, was that grace has come into the world. God's love has come down. He died to embrace people far from God. He prepaid the price so that people could come in, be forgiven, and know and be embraced by the love of God. And if we start to put conditions on Jesus that he himself did not impose, then we are not delivering the same message and it will not have the same effect because we've wrecked it with our limits. And what religious people didn't like about Jesus is that he was way too comfortable with sinful people. Jesus was comfortable, way more comfortable with people who were far from God than we are. Because Jesus understood, and this is the thing, he understood grace unleashed, was capable of transforming people. And that's what we don't believe. That's what legalists don't believe. That's what us, and I don't think anyone here is a legalist. I don't think I'm a legalist, but I know in my mind I reduce the gospel to something legalistic. It takes a lot of work not to The error of legalism Comes from not really having a grasp On what God is capable of By his grace And legalism comes from a, a Disbelief, just sort of a Skepticism, shall I say About The fact that the gospel is Good enough news to get the job done It's good enough news To get the job done And here's the thing I sometimes slip into a legalistic attitude in my heart. And I think you do too. And it's because I fail to grasp the potential of God's love to transform people. And here's the thing. It's because I fail to grasp how huge God's love is. And I don't say that being like, I'm going to try harder tomorrow to grasp his love. Because, come on. (laughs) That's the thing. So, this is the thing. This is is where the, the, the logical connection is. It is a totally natural problem for me not to be able to grasp the love of God. Because when I think about love, perfect love, I can only conceive of that by analogy. You too. So when we think about, oh, God loves me perfectly, then I think about, well, what's an example of love that I've known that's the most perfect example? And maybe I think about the love I have for my spouse. Maybe think I think about the love I have for my children. Or if I had a, a good father a good mother, which I, I did. I'm so, so thankful for that. Then I think about the love that they have for me, right? I choose the highest expression of the thing called love that I've experienced and then I try to, by analogy, understand the love of God. But you know what that means? It means that I have a, a ceiling that I'm going to hit really quick when it comes to comprehending the love of God. The ceiling is what I've experienced. And if I haven't experienced a love that sets me free and a love that reassures me of the fact that Despite my failings If I've experienced love that's contingent Then I can't comprehend the love that God has for me Until I start to understand a love that is faithful in all circumstances Then I can't even begin to compare the love that I know To the love that he's expressing on the cross And so if I can become a legalist really easy If I reduce God's love to the level of my understanding of love and I put God's love in this box that is connected to my experience, limited by my experience of love. Here's what Paul writes later to the Ephesians. It is just prayer, okay? I want you to listen to this, Ephesians 3, 14. For this reason, I kneel down before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, and I pray that he may grant you to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit that the christ may dwell in your hearts through faith i pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all of the saints what is the length and width and height And depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What Paul is saying is in this gospel, we are pointing to a love of God which surpasses our analogical understanding. It is not limited to your experience of love or your understanding. It is a love that is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ who would die on a cross for our sins to forgive them and restart a relationship with us. It's that kind of love which we can't even get our heads around. A love that surpasses knowledge. And Paul says, if you want to grow into grace... If you want to grow up into maturity, being rooted and established in faith, then contemplate and ask God, beg him, would you show me how great your love is that surpasses my understanding so that I would be filled with all your fullness, that I would understand the power of your grace and what its really potential is? I feel like I say this too much. But I'm an East Coast snob, right? That's just the culture I've been in for a long time. It's just deep in there. It's not I'm, not. I'm not proud of that. And I hate sounding like a hippie. All East Coast snobs hate sounding like hippies. And so I was like thinking about this last night and thinking about this stuff. And I'm just telling you, man, love is so awesome. And that's something a hippie would say. And so I, I'm... <laughs> Really, really, kind of hug up on it, and I and I and I was like, kind of like, laying in bed and thinking about this, and you know, I kind of put my head down. And I'm like, oh wait, I gotta write down some notes, and then I put my head down. I like, go, oh, wait, I gotta write down some notes, and and I realized what I was doing is I, <laughs> I really have this confidence in myself that that I could communicate to you in in adequate words the love of God. And then after three or four times of like trying to do that, I realized, oh, it's just not going to happen. <laughs> like, like, I can't do it. And that's what the gospel is. It is a message proclaiming and pointing to the love of God, which we cannot capture in words. And I don't like that. I like to understand things. I like to explain things. I can only tell you This about the love of God. It is love beyond your comprehension. It is love capable of doing things. But the type of love you've known can't measure up to. And can I suggest that if we start to talk about love and the grace of God, If you come to the end of your words And you think, yeah, I think that just about says it That you have not (laughs) Not spoken About the love of God The gospel to a degree is sort of like Like so idealistic Because it really believes that the grace Demonstrated on the cross Is sufficient make us holy, to sanctify us, to forgive us, and to draw us into this new life with Christ. It's so idealistic. And again, as an East Coast person, I'm just like, ugh. can I just get my mind around it? I can't. And just applicationally though, I think We are not we are not staying faithful to the fullness of the gospel if we aren't just blown away by the love that He's demonstrating for us in it. And when we talk, it's like this is this is the message that people who are far from God just find so appealing. It's that I get. Like, in all your addiction and all your sin and all your ignorance and all your hatred and all your anger, you are so far from God. And can I just tell you that there is a love in the world demonstrated by Jesus Christ that is so much bigger than your sin. And if we just, like, reduce the gospel to something less, I think we do damage to the gospel. We like need to spend so much more time thinking about how great the love of God is and how significant it is, what Jesus did. And if we're not blown away by that, then I think we are probably should keep thinking about it. We should keep praying. Lord, would you show us what it is to comprehend your love? all i have to say about that but to 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 just kind of put a bow on this right two perils license and legalism here's what i also want to say about this grace or the right understanding of grace is not a middle way between two risks license and legalism grace is a single idea that rightly understood avoids both pitfalls. Like the the revealing of love and forgiveness of God does both things. It keeps us rooted in, in the true power that we have, which is his work and his grace in our lives. It also will keep us from this licentiousness. The right doctrine of grace is not about splitting the difference between two wrong ways and finding a middle place. It's about rightly comprehending the power of grace to do what it was sent to do. Like if you're walking on a knife's edge, right? Again, I'm no experience here, but my guess is you're not on this narrow path, precipices on either side thinking, don't go too far left, don't go too far right. That sounds like a great way to fall off. Right? What you're thinking is staying on the path, staying on what's true, staying on trying to place my feet surely on the correct point. Not trying to not be too far this way or not be too th- that. That will come naturally when I'm trying to stay in the true place. You get what I'm saying? We don't need to manage these two tensions. We need to find, like when we're driving a nail, I just focus, I'm going to hit that nail right on the head. Not too far left, not too far right. I'm just trying to hit the one spot. The one spot is the power of God revealed at the cross, and it is enough. If I understand it and comprehend it by God's grace, I will continue to walk into it, and I will be transformed because it will do its work effectively. I don't need to manage it. I just need to keep understanding what it means that Jesus Christ died and rose again. Graham Tomlin, a theologian from England, I like how he says it. He says, the churches that St. Paul f- founded across the Mediterranean world uh, were new experimental communities based not on gift-giving that greased the wheels of social hierarchy, but on a new way of relating. They were founded not on the capital of ethnic, gender, uh, of, uh, ethnic, gender or social status, but on recognizing Uh, Each other as recipients Of a free gift Of God in Christ And the new patterns Of gratitude and obligation That that gift generated Grace rightly understood We understand that God is initiating a relationship With us He's giving us something freely But of course Like with anything, when someone gives me an awesome gift, I want to, quite naturally, I don't have to think about it, reciprocate. I want to continue in that relationship. Jesus is initiating something with us on the cross. Grace will lead us more deeply into a relationship with Christ, rightly understood. Grace is God's embrace anyone and everyone who would have his love and we need to proclaim that loud and clear boldly but it is also effective as we continue to proclaim it and we continue to proclaim grace we will see that it is effective to change those who come to know it and as far as we're concerned we just need to be concerned with proclaiming the God's love is greater and more transformative than we could ever imagine. Preach the true thing. Talk about the true thing. Think about, meditate on the significance of the cross, the love demonstrated there. Okay, going back, back up to the top, right? I think it's verse 18, uh, right, to wrap this up. Paul says, you know, from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. And during the trials that came to me through the plot of the Jews, you know that I did not hesitate to proclaim to you anything that was profitable. And to teach you publicly from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord. You know, Obviously I'm flopping the order Just for my own personal interest um, but, but Paul is framing this up And he's talking about the same things He's talking about the truth that he taught them From the beginning The truth that he went around from house to house Telling them about the love of God The, the, the public truth That Jesus has died And he fundamentally has changed Our way of relating to God And all that is required for us To make something of that Is Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. This is, this is the limiting principle, if anything, on the grace of God. This is how it becomes effective and meaningful, right? Because like the fact that someone somewhere loves me isn't really that relevant to me unless I come to accept the significance of that right? So so I have to, to a degree, just recognize the truth of the gospel, and that is this work of repentance. Repentance is not, as we have, I think, in churches kind of shift its meaning. It is not to stop doing bad things. That's not what repentance means. The word repentance is, in Greek, metanoia, and it really just means to have a new mind. So I need to in order, like the, the message that he went around house to house telling every single person about, Jews or Greeks, doesn't matter who, was you need to have a new mind toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. It is a response to. To the revealed love of God on the cross. A response to the good news that Jesus has come, taken on flesh, dwelt among us, died for our sins, been resurrected, and that we can have life with him. We need to just have a mind that is transformed by that fact and have faith that indeed everything in life, all the good that we can have is in Jesus Christ. And that repentance is this wholehearted thing. Um, Alan Hirsch, uh, he's a missiologist he has a little diagram that I've sort of stolen, adapted, I, I gave him credit but I changed some things, right, so I don't know, sorry Alan, you're not going to hear this, so it's fine um, right, so, so he kind of describes in diagrams like wholehearted repentance, and it's not again, it's not just like a moral transformation it's not just, oh, I'm going to stop doing bad things but it is this getting your mind your will, and he says soul, I sort of don't like that he uses Um, The part of yourself, uh, which is just kind of like your, um, oh man, (laughs) your like spiritual side of your life. Getting it informed in and caught up in the message of Jesus. That's what repentance is. You know, and I mean, it, it's, it's at least got three parts. I don't want to say that this is like a complete picture of repentance, but I think it does a better job of filling it out. Right? Because, because the gospel first comes to us as a proposition, right? And all propositions, all ideas, we have to think about. We, we understand things with our minds. We understand a message of God's love with our minds. And the first question we need to ask ourselves is, do we have faith in Jesus? It's, it's a question of, where are we putting our confidence and our trust? What is the master our worldview? What are the, the ideas that are capturing us? And, and Jesus kind of like came into the world, and he basically like has a message of repentance for the world, and he basically tells them, look, you guys are so consumed in your minds and in your wills and in your souls with false things, lies, and I'm coming to you to offer you repentance So that you would have renewal of mind, will, soul Like whole body, whole self, whole spirit That you would be caught up and renewed in your inner self In everything about you And, and so, so, so the gospel like, comes in It's the revealed love of God And it's the invitation to get our minds set upon true things Which is also going to lead us to get our wills set upon true things. Which is also going to lead us to get our souls to delight in true things. In the things that Jesus reveals. Paul goes on, he says this, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there. Except that in every town, the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. I think Paul is for us like a great example of what like full-bodied, wholehearted repentance looks like. Because he can come at the end of his ministry here and he says this, I consider my life of no value to myself. And I, 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 th- I, this is a very famous verse. You've probably all read it before. I came across this uh, when I was much younger, early on in ministry. And in the church tradition, I was a part of this was like, there was this message that like, everybody listened to by this pastor who was good. Was good. I'm sorry being snobby east coaster again it was a good message it was perfectly good but i would walk away thinking about paul and i thought i i good for paul that's what i thought i thought you know, paul says well, i consider my life of no value to myself and i think to myself well good for paul i like want that i would love to feel that way but why don't i why do why do I actually consider my life of great value to myself? Why is it that I'm so concerned about stuff and myself and my priorities which are not to testify to the gospel of God's grace? And I think that's also just being young, <laughs> right? Um, but it's to a degree—what I've what I come to realize over time is that— um, yeah, like, like when I repented of, of sin when I first came to Jesus, it was the first step in a long process of of giving my mind, my will, my soul, my body over to Jesus. And it's easy for me to look at people further down the line, people like Paul, who I don't know how old he was, Point, I'm sure he was at least in his forties, who've been following Jesus. I mean, he's been following Jesus like full bore for over a decade at this point. And I can just kind of look at their life and I can just sort of despair. And just say, I'm just never gonna, I'm never gonna be that. I'm never gonna have that. I'm never gonna experience that kind of like totally sold out for Jesus kind of thing. But of course, I have to remember um, that Paul had history with God. He had God revealing to him. He had this this gospel going more deeply into his soul, into the deep parts that I haven't hadn't had yet, particularly in my twenties. But what he did is he understood his purpose. He kept going down the course of his ministry, and over time, the Lord freed him more and more. And this work of repentance, this love proclaimed in the gospel renewed his mind, renewed his soul, renewed his will, renewed his heart more and more. That's what it does over time. That's what it does over time. And so as the worship team comes up here, you know, I just want to just pray because I want us to understand that what we've started with, the gospel, is what will get us here. It is powerful enough to transform my whole mind, my whole heart, my whole self. Like, it can deal with the deep stuff that I hide from God. But I have to just keep coming back to truth, coming back to grace. I need to continue to submit my mind and my will and my body to the truth. What God has already made clear, that His love is sufficient. And I just need to continue to comprehend, to try to comprehend, an an exercise that I know I will never be able to actually do, but I'd like to know more about God's love. I'd like to know more about His grace, because I know that as I know more about who He is and what He's done, what He has made possible on the cross, I will experience this kind of shifting of values, which is really what repentance is working shifting of values towards the old self valuing the things that i used to value towards valuing new things things that are coming from jesus christ things that are bought by his grace things bought for me on the cross and what jesus is doing is something so much better than i could comprehend and i just have to keep pursuing the one thing just banging the hammer On the head, no, banging the nail on the head, not the hammer, that that does not work. Banging the nail on the head with the truth. Jesus Christ died, he rose again, he has opened the way to the kingdom, he is sufficient for me. And I will just continue to have this renewed mind as I pursue him and as I experience and know more of who he is. And so Lord Jesus, I pray for us, and pray for us as a church, God, that we would be people who are doggedly persistent to pursue your grace, to hold on to the word of your grace, Lord. Uh, God, make us people who are regularly at a loss for words to explain the inexpressible gift of your love to us at the cross. If we run out of words, Lord, then we need to go back and ask, Lord, for you to show us what's true there, what you've done there, God. It is such beauty and such grace, Lord. You are life and peace, Lord. And if it's we sound like fools when we're proclaiming the gospel, amen, Lord. It will make us more foolish, more consumed with and interested in your love, I pray, by your Holy Spirit, Lord. Would you pour your love out into our hearts like you say you will? Lord, a love that we cannot comprehend, that we cannot grasp. Build us up, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, why don't we just uh, stand up and worship together?